0: Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Hello everyone, this is Paul and I'm your host for Mysteries Abound, episode 14. We'll be looking at a variety of stories this week. The first one is from the Sun newspaper in the UK and it's about some interesting flying saucer footage filmed in Turkey. And for those of you who love or hate the Big Brother TV show, Hitler planned a Big Brother-style television to broadcast Nazi propaganda. A Japanese team believes they have found some Yeti footprints in Nepal. And from the Mysterymag.com, uncommon gifts, a psychic experiment. Some newly released files contain UFO mysteries and the mystery pink light that appeared over London. From the Unmuseum, we have a story about tsunamis, the deadly waves. Those stories and more coming up in episode 14 of Mysteries Abound. Our first story today is a recent article from the sun.co.uk website, Flying Saucer filmed in Turkey and it's by Sebastian Lander. This astonishing video footage is claimed to be the most important images of a UFO ever filmed and is said to even depict aliens. The shots were captured by night guard Yalkan Yelman in a compound in Turkey earlier this year. The 42-year-old and a number of residents claim the UFOs were spotted over a four-month period between May and September near the compound in Istanbul. He said, I don't know what these things are. We filmed them several times and they are totally unknown to us. I was very excited when I saw them and I want the world to know that UFOs do exist. Almost two and a half hours of footage were filmed featuring a variety of objects ranging from incredible flying saucer-type craft to clustering orb-like lights hovering in the night sky. The clips were handed to the Sirius UFO Space Science Research Center in Turkey, who interviewed witnesses and painstakingly combed through the footage frame by frame. International UFO researcher Hatkin Akadon said, in this amazing video footage, Physical forms of UFOs and their metallic structures are clearly noticeable. What is more important is that in the close-up of some footages of the objects, entities in them can be distinctly made out. He continues, We have spoken with all of the witnesses and had detailed analysis conducted on all two and a half hours of footage. After conducting all of the analysis, we came to the conclusion that this video footage is 100% genuine. The objects filmed are structured objects and are not the result of misidentification or natural phenomena, aircraft or astronomical objects. They are not the results either of any kind of computer animation. Now is a time for world governments to acknowledge the reality of UFOs. He added, The images captured on film are expected to have a tremendous impact throughout the world, and they are the most important UFO images ever caught on camera. The footage will be revealed at the UFO Data Magazine annual conference in Pontfract, West York's, on October the 25th. And it has earned the seal of approval from British experts. UFO Data Magazine editor Russell Calligan said, This video footage from Turkey, if authentic, represents a serious challenge to science. I can honestly say... That this footage is truly unique. And if you head out to the show notes at o-i-g-in-z.info, and go to the menu at the top and clip on mysteries, you'll find the link to today's episode. And in there is a link to this website. And in there is a link to some video footage that relates to this article. It looks fairly clear, but whether it's authentic or not, it's hard to tell and in the same vein as the previous story is this article from space.newscientist.com Newly released files contain UFO mysteries Two US fighter planes were scrambled and ordered to shoot down a UFO over the English countryside during the Cold War according to secret files made public on Monday One pilot said he was seconds away from firing 24 rockets at the object, which moved erratically and gave a radar reading like a flying aircraft carrier. It spent periods motionless in the sky before reaching estimated speeds of more than 12,000 kilometers per hour, said pilot Milton Torres, who is now 77 and living in Miami, Florida. After the alert... An unnamed man told Torres he must never talk about the incident, and he duly kept silent for more than 30 years. His story was among dozens of UFO sightings in Defence Ministry files released at the National Archives in London. The files blame other UFO sightings on weather balloons, clouds or normal aircraft. UFO expert David Clark said the sighting may have been part of a secret U.S. project to create phantom aircraft on radar screens to test Soviet air defences. Perhaps what this pilot had seen was some kind of experiment in electronic warfare, he said. Something very unusual happened. In a written account, Torres described how he scrambled his F-86D Sabre jet in calm weather from the Royal Air Force Base at Manston Kent in May 1957. "'I was only a lieutenant and very much aware of the gravity of the situation,' he said. "'The order came to fire a salvo of rockets at the UFO. "'The authentication was valid and I selected 24 rockets.' I had a lock-on that had the proportions of a flying aircraft carrier, he added. The larger the airplane, the easier the lock-on. The blip almost locked itself. At the last moment, the object disappeared from the radar screen and the high-speed chase was called off. He returned to base and was debriefed the next day by an unnamed man who looked like a well-dressed IBM salesman. He threatened me with a national security breach if I breathed a word about it to anyone, he said. The documents contain no official explanation for the incident, which came at a time of heightened tension between the West and the Soviet Union. Planes were on constant standby at British bases for a possible Soviet attack. I shall never forget it, Torres told the Times. On that night, I was ordered to open fire even before I had taken off. That had never happened before. Of the music for today's podcast comes from the PodSafe Music Network, and they can be found at music.podshow.com. Now, if you do like this podcast, don't forget that I do a couple of other ones. I do one called Bizarre Bizarre, and the other is called Origins, O-R-I-G-I-N-Z, and both can be found on iTunes or Podcast Alley or places like that. The website associated with Origins is www.origins.info, and links to the mystery stories can also be found attached to this site. story comes from the www.dailymail.co.uk website. Hitler planned Big Brother style television to broadcast Nazi propaganda. And it's a story by Will Stewart. Adolf Hitler was on the verge of creating an Orwellian-style cable TV system to broadcast Nazi propaganda around Germany. Screens would have been set up in public places, including in laundries, so housewives could tune in, according to a documentary based on papers and tapes found in his bunker. When the Allies overran Germany, engineers were on the point of a technological breakthrough – to allow TV pictures to be transmitted to screens and sound to radio receivers. They had also recorded programs on news, sport and education. Prototype programs included Family Chronicles, An Evening with Hans and Gelly, an early reality TV show depicting the wholesome Aryan life of a young German couple for the rest of the population to model themselves on. Another plan was to show footage of executions of traitors to the Nazis. The plans first came to light in 1945, when boxes with tapes were found in the ruins of Berlin by Soviet soldiers, the Russian documentary says. According to the program, the engineer Walter Brook was asked to make people's television a reality. He tabled a document to Hitler called plan to supply people's transmitter to German homes, and the laying of a broadband cable between Berlin and Nuremberg was begun, it claimed. A former SS officer, Kurt Schulmeister, told the program how a relative of Hitler's mistress Eva Braun was filmed being shot after being caught trying to flee Berlin as the Soviet army advanced. Schulmeister said Hitler's deputy, Heinrich Himmler, authorised the filming and hinted it was being filmed for Hitler to watch. He said, Himmler wanted somebody else in a different place to see what was going on. Joseph Hebels, who masterminded the plan, told Rudolf Hess's sister Margaret, who was also working on the scheme, We'll be able to show whatever we want. We'll create a reality which the people of Germany need and can copy. Your task is to teach German women to live this way. Hitler early on realised the power of television propaganda. His address at the opening ceremony of the Berlin Olympic Games in 1936 was broadcast to systems of bulky mobile TV stations where Germans could watch it in town squares but the program claims the Nazi leader and his scientists were planning a far more complex series of public TV screens before the Allies overran Germany and he committed suicide in 1945. The scheme is reminiscent of George Orwell's novel 1984, where Big Brother looms out from public screens, entreating the subdued populace to work for the state and telling them, Big Brother is watching you. The reality television show Big Brother, in which contestants are under constant surveillance, is based on Orwell's concept. And coming up in a few moments is a short story from the Yahoo News. A Japanese team finds Yeti footprints in Nepal. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and then click on the Mysteries link, and then of course the link to this episode, you'll find in there a link to this article. And on here there's a short slideshow and a picture of the footprints that they have found. Kathmandu, A team of Japanese adventurers say they have discovered footprints, they believe were made by the legendary Yeti, said to roam the Himalayan regions of Nepal and Tibet. The footprints were about 20 centimetres or 8 inches long and looked like a human's, Yositeru Takahashi, the leader of the Yeti Project Japan, told the Associated Press in Kathmandu on Monday. Takahashi was speaking after he returned with his seven-member team from their third attempt to track down the half-man, half-ape tales of which have gripped the imaginations of Western adventurers and mountaineers for decades. Despite spending 42 days on Dal Agari 4, a 7,661-metre peak, where they said they have seen traces of yetis in the past, the team failed in their prime objective of capturing one on film. But Takahashi said the footprints were proof enough. Myself and other team members have been coming to the Himalayas for years and we can recognise bear, deer, wolf and snow leopard prints and it was not one of those, he said. We remain convinced it is real. The footprints and the stories the locals tell make us sure that this is not imaginary, he said. The team had set out nine motion-sensitive cameras in an area where Takahashi saw what he thought was a yeti during a previous expedition in 2003. It was about 200 metres away in silhouette. It was walking on two legs like a human and looked about 150 centimetres tall, said Takahashi. Despite their lack of success this time, the team plans to continue the quest. We will come back as soon as we can, and we will keep coming back until we get the Yeti on film," said Takahashi. The following is a very brief article from the dailymail.co.uk website, but I've put it in because if you go to the show notes and look at the links to this article, the pink coloration in the sky over London is really quite unusual pictured the mystery pink light that appeared over London. While a pink sky at night might be a shepherd's delight, London residents were left scratching their heads last night as a mysterious pink cloud drifted over the city. Bemused bystanders in Mayfair craned their necks to witness the strange alien-like cloud that appeared for just under an hour at around 8.30pm. It hovered over buildings before breaking up and slowly disappearing. But after dismissing theories of UFOs and atmospheric phenomena, the Met office said the blob was likely to be nothing more than the lights of the city reflected in a cloud. A spokesman said, If you have a very high cloud as we did last night, You tend to get this odd splotches of low cloud that will reflect the pink or sometimes orangey-pink lights of the city from all angles and stand out from the darkness of the sky. It can be truly spectacular to witness. just a bit of feedback about the podcast. I found this on the TalkShoe website just in the middle of recording episode 13, so I didn't get a chance to include it. And it's from Michael from Denver, Colorado. I just stumbled across your show last week and absolutely love it. I downloaded all the episodes onto my computer at work and subscribed to your show on iTunes. You have a great voice and the stories are awesome. I also love the music playing in the background. Keep up the great work. I can't wait for episode 13. Well, thanks, Michael, for a great review. It is much appreciated and remember everyone if you wish to provide feedback for the show please do it via email that's paulrex at paulrex.com or better still through itunes or podcast alley or somewhere like that itunes and those high profile places are really great places to put feedback because it does raise their profile and more people then find the podcast and download it which is really heartening for people who produce podcasts so remember if you do get a chance please give us some feedback. It does make things a lot better for us. The following article comes from the Unmuseum website and they can be found at www.unmuseum.org and it's entitled Tsunami deadly waves. December 26, 2004, a wall of water as high as 30 feet crashed into shorelines along the Indian Ocean from Africa to Australia, washing away whole coastal towns and villages. With a death toll of more than 200,000, it is perhaps the largest natural disaster in the history of man. What caused these huge waves and where will they strike Next. It was early in the morning, almost 2.18am, on April 1st, 1946, at the Scotch Cap Lighthouse on Unimak Island, Alaska. The five men that were on duty inside the five-storey building that stood on a bluff some 40 feet above the sea were nervous. An earthquake had occurred less than an hour ago, shaking the station violently for 30 seconds. 27 minutes later, a short, hard aftershock occurred. The officer on watch at the lighthouse that night, Leonard Pickering, was trying to get news about the quake from Dutch Harbour Navy radio. Perhaps as he did so, he looked out the window and pondered why the ocean was so amazingly low. So low that the seabed was exposed. Perhaps he didn't. We will never know for sure. What we do know is that a few minutes later, the sea returned in a violent rush. Waves climbed up the 40-foot bluff and engulfed the lighthouse. The water was so high that it would have topped the tip of the lighthouse if it had still been there. As it was, the building probably collapsed when the wavefront hit it, killing all five men inside. When rescuers from a nearby Coast Guard station reached the site early the next morning, they found the area covered with debris. Only the foundation of the structure still stood to attest that the lighthouse had ever existed. As for the crew, the rescuers that day found only an amputated human foot, a kneecap and a bit of human intestines. The Scotch Cap lighthouse and its keepers were the victims of a tsunami, a series of violent waves that can rush into coastal locations and sweep away cars, level buildings and kill people. Typically, A tsunami can reach a height of 30 feet above sea level, but in some extreme cases, as at the Scotch Light, they can reach heights of over 100 feet. The most deadly tsunamis are the results of earthquakes. The sudden movement of the earth can raise or lower a vast portion of the ocean bottom by as much as 10 feet in just a few minutes. When the sea bottom goes up, the column of water piled on top of it is also pushed up, Creating a bulge in the surface of the ocean. As this mass of water spreads out, a series of waves are created that fan out from the earthquake area. These waves make up the tsunami. The word tsunami is Japanese for harbour wave. Sometimes the English term tidal wave is used, but it is misleading as a tsunami has little to do with the tides. They are also, in most respects, unlike normal waves. A typical ocean wave is caused by wind sweeping across the water. These waves may appear large when driven by a storm, but they only involve the top few feet of the ocean. Normal ocean waves have a short wavelength, or the distance from the wave crest to the next wave crest, that is usually less than 100 feet. In contrast, tsunamis involve the entire water column from the seabed to the surface. Their wavelengths are also very long, maybe as much as a hundred miles. Because there is so much water moving in the tsunami, the energy involved is tremendous. Despite this, a tsunami is practically invisible in deep water. To a ship at sea, it may appear as a rapidly moving three foot high swell that is easily lost among the normal ocean waves. Only as it approaches the beach, does its true size become apparent? The waves in a tsunami move very rapidly through deep water, reaching speeds of 500 miles per hour. As the wave approaches land, the water grows increasingly shallow and friction with the ocean bottom slows the wave. As other waves back up behind it, the wavelength shortens and the top of the wave height increases until it may be 10, 20, 30 feet or higher. The actual height of a tsunami wave is hard to measure without risking life and limb, so scientists usually gauge their size by a term called the run-up. This is the maximum vertical height above sea level that the water reaches on the coast. In the case of Scotch Cap, the run-up was measured at over 100 feet. The amount of damage done by the waves will vary widely depending not only on the size of the wave, but the configuration of the shoreline and the sea bottom. In the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, the Maldives Islands suffered tremendous damage, while just a little to the south the island of Diego Garcia had very minor damage, probably because it was protected by an offshore underwater canyon. Even after being slowed by the shallow bottom as they approached land, Tsunami waves still move faster than any human being can run, often with velocities of 45 miles per hour or more. As one scientist observed, by the time you see a tsunami approaching, it is too late to get away. Because it is too late to escape a tsunami by the time you see it, tsunami warning systems are extremely important. The deadly 1946 tsunami that destroyed Scott Cap Light Station and also ravaged much of Hawaii caused the United States to set up the Pacific Tsunami Warning System, or the PWTS, in 1948. At the headquarters in Iwa Beach, Hawaii, staff members monitor seismographic information from around the world. If an earthquake occurs, They combine the information from several seismograph stations at different locations to get the position of the quake. If the quake occurs below the sea floor and it is strong enough, 7.5 or higher on the Richter scale, it may have generated a tsunami and a tsunami watch may be issued. The centre also operates a number of deep sea buoys that are connected to sensors on the bottom of the ocean. By measuring pressure, the sensors can tell the height of the wave of water above them to within less than half an inch. If the sensor detects the passage of a wave that looks like a tsunami, it contacts the buoy, which in turn sends a satellite signal to the PTWS. Confirmation of a tsunami is also made by getting reports from each coastal location along the wave's route as it arrives there. Once a tsunami is confirmed, a warning is issued to affected areas. Since the PTWS was set up, it has warned the public about several significant tsunami events and saved hundreds of lives. Unfortunately, because the Indian Ocean had not had a major tsunami event in many years, no warning system was in place in there in December 2004 and when the tsunami struck, the result was a huge loss of life. Even without a tsunami warning system, there are some signs that may warn coastal residents of an impending tsunami. It is prudent to always evacuate a coastal area after a strong earthquake. If the sea suddenly recedes and the seabed is exposed, this may also be a warning that a tsunami is on the way. Unfortunately in the past, events such as a sudden drop in the sea level have drawn the curious down to the beach increasing the casualties when the actual waves arrive. Needless deaths have also occurred when victims fail to realise that a tsunami can be made up of multiple waves and that the first one to arrive often isn't the biggest. The curious can wander down to the ocean front to see the damage by the first wave and be killed when the next wave arrives a few minutes later. The regions most likely to be affected by a tsunami are those which are seismically active. The Pacific Ocean, where two continental plates meet, is notorious for the creation of tsunamis. Here, in what scientists call a subduction zone, the Pacific Ocean plate is sliding under the North American plate. When they move, the grinding between the plates creates shock waves that run through the rock. We interpret these as an earthquake. If the earthquake raises or lowers the seabed, A tsunami is likely to result. The December 26, 2004 disaster involved the Indian plate and the Burma plate near Sumatra. Previously the area under the Indian Ocean has been quiet and no significant tsunamis had occurred there in many years. This has scientists wondering if other places not traditionally associated with tsunamis might be under threat. While the continental United States has been spared tsunamis in recent years, anywhere along the Pacific coast might be vulnerable. In 1964, Crescent City in Northern California was hit by a tsunami generated by an earthquake near Valdez, Alaska. The four waves associated with that tsunami washed away 29 city blocks and killed 11 people. The Atlantic coast of North America has seen fewer and smaller tsunamis, but there is still a chance that a major one could occur. In 1929, a giant wave hit Newfoundland, Canada, killing 50 people. Scientists are also concerned that a fault zone in the Caribbean might generate a wave that would run up the United States' east coast. Subduction zones are the most frequent, but not the only cause of tsunamis. A submarine landslide a large meteor hitting the ocean, or volcanic action can all cause tsunamis. Some scientists are concerned about a volcano on the Canary Islands in the Atlantic near Africa. An eruption there could cause a gigantic landslide, a rock about the size of Manhattan, that would end up in the ocean and most likely cause a large tsunami. Computer models show that such a wave could cross the Atlantic in nine hours and engulf the east coast, including New York City, with 80-foot waves. Other scientists caution that such a scenario might happen far in the future, or not at all. Even so, as the disaster along the Indian Ocean has shown us, mankind needs to take the steps necessary to prepare for these big waves. Failing to do so can have catastrophic results. And to conclude today's podcast, a juicy little story from the Mystery Mag, a psychic experiment written by Mike Avery. Sylvie and I had been having a quiet day and preparations had already begun for the forthcoming spirit-sitting that night. We both bathed and began the blackout process of the hall, and to make sure the room at the back of the house we were to use was absolutely secure. Doors and windows locked and bolted, telephone disconnected. A large bowl of water placed to one side of the large double bed that almost filled the tiny room. Two chairs positioned in the only remaining space, facing each other. The window blacked out. No light at all, and no sound. A trumpet lit by luminous strips, already primed by electric light, sat in between the chairs on a small table. Absolute darkness. The time came. We were ready. We went in, sat, sat, and calm filled the air along with silence and peace. I made the invocation, watched and waited, aware that Sylvie had gone down in consciousness meditation as her awareness left the room, and she became still. After about ten minutes, I could hear her shallow, gentle breathing from where she sat not two yards from me. Next, a breeze, chilled and blowing quite hard, came from somewhere else in the room. There was no open window or doorway, as they were sealed. Then hands, four or five in all, began playing with my hair from behind me, stroking my head and face and poking at my skin on my arms and ribs in places I just did not expect. There was a solid wall immediately behind me, This was actually very strong physical contact. Then silence and stillness again. Loud footsteps sounded across the floor, even where the bed was, and marched around and around the whole room, then came through to where Sylvie was sitting in her comatose state and walked right up to me. A stroking hand on my hand, and there was whistling in the air too, high up near the ceiling. This sound moved slowly around the room, changing to a very low, loud hum, lasting five minutes or more, something like Tibetan chanting or droning. This continued to move around the room, first one direction, then in another. I was concentrated, but with my mind relaxed and open, absorbing each circumstance, being careful not to expect or hinder, but just accept a small electric blue circular light like thread woven loosely in a ball spun across from the outer wall and disappeared through an opposite wall there was a male coughing faint but distinct from somewhere else within the room then silence again the swishing of material and scent of perfume filled the air but was gone as quickly as it had come more hands touched and prodded me with feet on the wooden floorboards and touching my feet. A hard pressure on one of my feet and more sounding clomps first in one direction then turning to another. Smells of ancient past, dusty rooms and other voices broke into the silence of one experience after another. Activity of paws on my forearms and upper legs with pressure and weight behind them The dogs were here again. Our precious animals, who had passed away years previously, but always came to every event we did with spirit, so loyal were they to our work, yet they had not been in my mind at all. I am always so careful not to have memories of situations to clutter it in these experiments, otherwise it could be construed as me bringing effects of my memory to the present physical earth. I have to remain calm and as still as possible at all times, mentally and physically, so the effects spirits are able to bring have a serious physical statement in our world and for me to record it in our reality. Suddenly, it's over, and they have left the room. After a couple of minutes, Sylvie comes back. I thank the spirit world, turn on the light and notice the trumpet has moved to another part of the room. Another experiment completed with success. Well, that concludes episode 14 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoy today's podcast and are willing to come back and listen to episode 15. Bye for now.